of a challenge. We were talking about how God's, bi- or God's word, the Bible, is like a sextant that brings our true north, our north star, down to our horizon so that we can understand God's heart and he can begin to shape our heart since we've been called to be a reflection of his. And so this morning, I, or, or last week, I encouraged you to take at least 15 minutes a day throughout the week and, and begin by asking this question, God, would you reveal your heart to me? And then give me the ears to hear whatever it is you want to say to me. And so, because I didn't want to just throw that challenge out and then not give an opportunity to respond back, I'd love to know, did any of you actually take that up? And even if you didn't do every single morning, you can still throw something in here. So let's get a couple here. Coming back here. All right. Is this working? I, I can't tell if it is. it working? Say something. Use the gray one. So this isn't, you broke this. What'd you do? All right, the gray one. That's the one I'm holding, Mike. Um, <laughs> got it. Okay, use, use one of... Okay. Use the black mic that has a gray head. Good, all right. Let's see. I, they never let me touch these things. These are outside of my pay grade. All right, we got a couple over here. Yeah, go ahead and stand up. Good morning, everybody. Hi, Liz. Hi. So I basically decided I would start with John and reread it. And as I was going through it, it just really became clear to me, like, who Jesus was and the direction I should take from him. And recently, John put a chalkboard in our kitchen. And so I wrote these things down as I was learning them, uh, who he was and what he did. And every time I walked down my hall and I turned the corner into my kitchen, the thing I see the most, the biggest one I wrote first, is unfailing love and faithfulness. Mm. So every morning I see that, and I'm starting to just daily soak that in. So it's been a great exercise. Thank you for doing awesome. that. Thanks, Liz. Yeah, and then did you want to share as well? No, you were just... <laughs> I'll stand Good morning. My name is Chris. Um, I turned to the Book of Palms, and I was... Or Psalms, excuse me. And I was really just um, at feeling that I needed to trust God with every bit of my being, with every bit, my finances, my thoughts, and give all of my negative potential feelings to him and wake up every morning and just ask for refreshing his healing his faith to take over my life and it has given me a really good sense of positivity throughout the day and I feel more um, more blessed to be able to share his love with everyone I come across awesome thank you Chris oh Robert come on buddy we're just hanging out in this corner of the room today. Yeah. I'm so excited because Jesus is the main part of my, the biggest part of my life. I just had an operation on, on the 4th of, uh, on Friday the 4th on my veins. And I, I followed up with an ultrasound on Thursday. And the word she said, perfect. No problem. I'm healed because I'm healed through his stripes. Amen. 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 Thank you, Robert. Oh, reaching. Maybe one more? Anybody? Oh, Mervin. Come on. I can stand up. You got it. Hi, I'm Murph Garvey, and uh, I've enjoyed something that uh, probably all of you would like as well. Uh, It's called The Morning with Jesus, and it's uh, a little booklet that has the day and the date and everything, so you don't have any problem finding what day it is and what, what the date and it's very has scripture in it, and it also has experiences from people. Mm-hmm. And actually, I got reading it 
for about six months, and I realized it's all written by ladies, and the whole whole thing is all all by women. It's very interesting and, and very scriptural, and you'll love it. All right, thank you, Merv. Yeah, and then and for those of you who would like to grab the daily bread, we always make sure that we have the most up to date one at the back. All right. So as for those of you who are just joining us at this point in our series, we are in a series that we're calling True North, and it's really built off of this idea. We find ourselves in a world that's rapidly changing. Some, in, in some ways, we're using the analogy of a ship out at sea, away from land. We can't see anything. And the one thing that sailors absolutely need if they're going to be navigating on the open ocean is a fixed reference point. And we've been identifying our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as that fixed reference point. So as King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you need to trust in the Lord with all your heart, with everything. And don't rely on your own understanding. And in everything you do, in all of your ways, acknowledge him, submit to him, orient your life around him, and he'll make your path straight. And so... We talked about last week the fact that we can't do that by our own strength. It's one thing to know where the North Star is. It's yet another thing to know how to navigate or orient your life around it. And so sailors use a tool they call the sextant that they can point at the horizon, and it also magnifies that that North Star or the sun, and it then imposes it over their horizon, and that's how they're able to figure out, A, where they're at, and then B, where they need to go. And then they can orient themselves around it. And in the same way, we talked about how Scripture acts as that sextant in our lives. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, my, my son has been sick, and then I decided that I need to finish whatever food he doesn't eat. So, of course, I caught it. So, um, so the Bible is our north. Or I'm sorry, the Bible is not our north star. The Bible is simply the tool that helps bring the heart of our Father God down into our reality so that we can begin to orient our lives around him. Now today I want to talk about another tool, another resource that our Father has given us to be able to follow him in order for our paths to be made straight. And it's something that we may not be as familiar with or perhaps we just don't think that we need. And so in order to help us get just how integral this is to our our walk with him, I want to tell you a story. So there's a guy named Michael Plant that back in 1992, he was an avid sailor. He had sailed around the world a number of times. And back in 1992, he decided he wanted to sail from the East Coast over to France, right across the Atlantic, a transatlantic crossing. He wanted to do it by himself in his boat, the Coyote. When he told his friends that he was going to do that, they're like, yeah, okay, well, you're just doing another one because he'd already been around the world a number of times. He was an experienced sailor. He knew what he was doing, and his ship, the Coyote, had all the bells and whistles. It had everything that somebody wanting to make a transatlantic crossing would need to do it. Well, after 11 days of him going, they lost radio contact with him. And at first they're like, well, you know, I mean, we know that there's some bad weather out there right now, so he's probably just busy keeping the ship straight. He'll get in touch with us soon enough. But after three or four more days of radio silence, they began to grow worried. And so they, they organized a search party, and they began looking for the ship. And about four days later, a a tanker ship spied the coyote turtled upside down in the water. 
and they, they radioed it in. His friends raced out there, and they figured in their mind, okay, so the, we found the coyote. Now we need to find Michael because he's got to be out here somewhere. He's, he's in his life raft. We know he's okay. But when they pulled up the coyote, they realized that that wasn't the case because the life raft was only partially inflated still in the cabin. He didn't even have time to inflate it. And they're thinking to themselves, he's gone. What happened? How on earth could an experienced sailor die just making this Atlantic crossing when he sailed around the world so many times? And they realized that the clue to what happened was the fact that his boat was completely capsized upside down. Because here's something that I didn't realize about ships that try to cross the ocean. I've only ever gone on catamarans, and I'm really good at turtling those things because every time I've, I've, I've gone with one, my brother Mark knows, like, we flip that thing all the time. But any ship that wants to cross the ocean needs to have more weight under the water than above the water. And you think about it, for a, a sailing ship, that's a really tall mass, and it's going to get blown on one way or the other by the breeze. And so if we can throw the, the picture of a, a sailboat up here for just a moment, you have it in your outline, you see that thing sticking way down? That's called a keel. And that keel is made of metal. And that metal, for at least on the coyote, that metal keel was 8,000 pounds. It is intended so that when the ship gets hit from the side by a wave, it's going to rock and come back because there's more weight under the water than above. And even if it were to turtle, even if the mast were to go completely underwater, because there's more weight underneath, it would ultimately right itself. For, a, for another ship, kind of like a cruise ship some of you have been on, some of you have seen those big tanker ships, they don't have these keels. So what they have, can you throw that up there? What they have instead are these large ballast tanks that they have at the bottom. And then when they need to get into a place that's a little more shallow, they can pump those out and then their draft rises up. They don't take as much space underwater. But when they're out in the open ocean, particularly when the seas get rough, they fill that ballast tank completely up because they're going to ride lower in the water and they're going to cut through the waves. Well, here's what they realized. The reason that Michael's ship, the coyote, was upside down is because at some point in his crossing, his keel broke off. And at that moment, the moment he lost that balance, it didn't matter how much experience he had. It didn't matter what bells and whistles he had in his ship. He was a dead man sailing, and it was just a matter of time before the wind or the waves took him over. And when it did happen, it happened so quickly he didn't even have time to radio for help or get his life raft inflated. So we see this, this law in sailing that we must have balance, ballast in our life. We must have more weight under the water than above the water if we hope to be seaworthy. But that's not just a law for sailing. That's also a law for life. Because think about this for a moment. A sailing boat without any ballast is only safe when it's moored at a dock in a harbor. The moment it goes out to sea, it is in massive danger of capsizing. And in the same way, those of us who are walking through life without spiritual ballast, without more weight underneath the surface than what people see on the surface, we are only safe in life's calm harbors when things are going as planned when the things that we anticipate is ultimately what happens. The moment that we hit a storm, and let's not joke ourselves, we will hit storms. We will encounter rough patches. We will be hit, sideswiped by waves we never saw coming. 
when that happens, if we don't have more weight underneath the water than what we present to people on our Facebook feed, in our job, and at church, when we put on that happy face, even though inside our lives are crumbling, then we are in deep, deep trouble. Now, the question, of course, is, well, what is our spiritual ballast, right? It's one thing to go, okay, I see this, this big thing hanging down from the bottom of a sailboat. It's made of metal. That makes sense. It's weighty. But what is our spiritual ballast? And I, it's funny. I actually began asking people this week, what do you think our ballast is? And I got a number of different answers. Some people are saying it's our faith, right? It's our trust in God that God is in control and I am not. That trust is everything. That keeps me upright in the storm. And it's true that that is a ballast. Think about this for a moment. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent comes slithering in, the very first thing he attacks is their trust in God. He begins to undermine their perception of God. Did he really say not to test? He's holding out on you. Don't you realize he made you deficient because he doesn't want you to be like him? And only in that moment, after he's undermined Adam and Eve's trust in their creator, does the fruit begin to look more appetizing because perhaps he can give them what God so obviously forgot to give them. And in the same way, last week, we looked at the temptations of Satan to Jesus in the wilderness right after he'd been baptized, right after God had spoken over him, you are my son whom I love and with you I'm well pleased. And directly after that, in comes the enemy once again and begins to question the truthfulness of that statement. If you are the son of God, then prove it. Turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, prove it. Jump off the edge because scripture says that the angels won't even let you strike a heel. You see that the enemy loves to undermine our trust in God. So that would be a very adequate answer for what our spiritual ballast is. Now, another answer I got a lot was, well, it's grace. Grace is the ballast that holds us up because our relationship with God is founded in grace. And it is utterly true. From beginning to end, it's not just the beginning of a relationship where we need grace. It's all the way through. As somebody who's been following God for longer than most, you know, some of you up here in the front couple of rows have been alive, I recognize that even today as a pastor, my relationship with him is utterly founded upon his grace. And there, but by the grace of God, I would not be standing here and able to speak anything because I'm not a perfect person. And anybody who purports to have it all together is lying to themselves or lying to you. So both of those things, our faith in God and grace, would be adequate answers for what it means to have that spiritual ballast. But I think that there's something even deeper than that that I want to focus on this morning. Something that both our trust in him and his grace point towards. And that is ultimately to a relationship. Because think back to the Garden of Eden for a moment. When God spoke the world into existence and then got down on his hands and his knees into the dust and began to form that first man and woman. And then he knelt down and he breathed the breath of life into their lungs. Corruptible flesh, divine spirit becomes a living human being. Why did he create us in the first place? I would suggest he created us to glorify himself, but also to be in relationship with him as we represented him to the rest of creation and cared for it. He created us for relationship. And because of that, he entrusted us with the free will to be able to choose whether or not to be in relationship with him so that we could actually, so that our relationship would be genuine. 
even though he knew that by giving us free will, he was also giving us the ability to reject relationship, to push him away, and to bring some of the brokenness that we see in our reality to bear. And yet he chose to give us free will anyway because he knew that it was worth it to actually be able to be in relationship with us. Jesus, when he showed up, he began to invite people to be a part of what God was doing. And what was his invitation? Was it, pray this prayer, and then I'll see you when you get to heaven? No, what was it? This is the interactive portion. Follow me, right? His invitation wasn't pray a prayer. His invitation was from beginning to end, follow me, walk with me, learn from me. Watch how I respond, and then you go do likewise. All right, guys, you've been walking with me for a little bit. Now, two by two, I want you to head out there, and I want you to try it, and then I want you to come back, and let's talk about it. Let's process it. Let's see what happened that went well. Let's see that what didn't go so well, and we'll just discuss it. And in that way, they were discipled by Jesus. It was an invitation not to a theology. It was an invitation not to a religion. It was an invitation to a relationship. And I would suggest that that is the spiritual ballast that holds us up in the midst of a storm is a prayer-filled, intimate, abiding relationship with our triune God. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want to show you how Jesus modeled this for us. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. So let me give you a little bit of back story, a little bit of context while you're turning there. At this point that we're going to pick up in the book of Mark, Jesus has just really been doing his public ministry for a very short period of time. His disciples have just started following him. They're still feeling this whole thing out, wondering, man, there's something different about this rabbi than all the other rabbis, and I can't believe he invited us into this adventure. I mean, we're fishermen. We flunked out of of rabbinic school. He could have picked such other better people, but he picked us. And at this point, Jesus has been going around teaching and healing and casting out demons. And now he's over at Peter's house. And they're just spending a Sabbath afternoon together. And as the sun begins to set and they finish their meal together, there's a knock at the door. Peter goes and answers it. And as he opens the door, there's about three or four people waiting there, wanting to see Jesus. And Peter looks beyond their shoulders, and there's dozens more people walking down the street, coming to his house. Because word has spread. That rabbi, who not only teaches with authority, but also casts out demons and heals people, he's here in our town. Let's go see him. And before the end of the night, virtually the entire village has come out to see Jesus. And he has spent the entire night healing and teaching and casting out demons. And if you jump down to verse 35, we're going to pick up the story now. Night has come. Jesus and the disciples have gone to sleep. Verse 35. Very early in the morning. So this would be Sunday morning, the very next day. While it was still dark. Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. What I want us to recognize here, I just want to camp for a moment on each of these verses. What I want us to see here is that Jesus was God incarnate. He understood the heart of God, and yet even in the midst of his ministry, he recognized the need to pause and spend time with his true north and go, God, okay, am I doing what you called me to do? Am I going in the right direction? 
or am I getting thrown off? I'm sure that he took some of the excitement because this is very early on in his ministry. This is the first time we see that crowds of people are starting to glom around him. And he's probably feeling pretty excited like, God, this was so fun last night. I got to see this and I got to do that. Thank you so much for showing up. And in the midst of it, God began to redirect his heart and remind him of what he had been called to do because notice what happens next. His disciples wake up. They want to like debrief what happened the night before. They look around and they can't find Jesus anywhere. They realize that there's people knocking at the door wanting Jesus to talk to them and teach them and heal them. And so they go, we've got to go find him. So Simon Peter and his brothers and all the rest of the disciples spread out looking for him. And when they finally found him, verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. They want an encore. They want more of what you gave last night. This is great. This is exactly what you were hoping for, right? I mean, we know we hitched our, our wagons to the right rising star. You're the man, Jesus, and there's more people that want you to minister to them. And notice what Jesus says, because this is very, very telling. Verse 38, Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also, because that is why. I have come. Jesus, there's, there's tons of people here that want to talk to you. Why wouldn't you just go back there? I mean, it's easy. They'll come to you. Yeah, but I didn't just come to heal. I didn't just come to cast out demons. I didn't just come to feed people. Because those things are momentary things. What I've come to do is plant seeds that will produce fruit that leads to eternal life. I came to share the good news that the kingdom of God is crashing into our reality. And so I've done that here. And I know there will always be more people who will clamor for help, clamor for what I can give. But there's other people who haven't heard the good news yet. And I need to share that with them as well. So yes, I know this is good, but I've been called to something better. What I want us to recognize in the midst of this is that Jesus... I'm sure was caught up in the groundswell of excitement of what was going on. He had been hit by a wave of public acclaim. And yet because of his willingness to get away and spend some time with God, reorienting himself around his true north, he was not pushed off course by it. Instead, he was able to rewrite his his direction and keep moving forward. And it was hard for his disciples, but they, they followed him. They were confused for a good portion of it, but they followed him anyway. And by the way, this isn't the only time. A lot of times pastors will find one verse and kind of build an entire thinking out of it. This is not the only time that Jesus models this type of pausing in the middle of what's going on, pausing in the midst of great stuff, pausing in the midst of really hard stuff and connecting with his true north. He does it time and time again through the four gospels that we see. Turn with me to Mark chapter six. I'm going to show you just one more. So as we pick up the story here, this is a different season in Jesus's life. Sure, the public acclaim continues to rise. The waves of excitement continue to just pound this ship of the disciples and Jesus as they're trying to slowly move towards the cross. And as, as we pick up the story here, Jesus has just learned that his cousin, John, the guy who baptized him at the Jordan, has been beheaded killed because he chose to speak out against the king and say that something he was doing was wrong. He lost his head over it. And when Jesus hears this, 
And he sees how haggard his disciples are looking because they're constantly bombarded by people wanting him to be cared for and wanting to be fed and wanting to be taught and wanting to be healed. Jesus says, hey guys, we need to take a time out. We need to not, not just pause for a couple of hours. We, want, we need to get the heck out of Dodge. Somewhere where we can just be. So load up in the boat. We're going to head across the Sea of Galilee to this remote area. And so that's what they do. They get in the boat. Unfortunately... Word gets out of what Jesus is doing, and people begin to share. And suddenly, when Jesus lands at that very remote spot that he thought they'd be alone at, there are crowds of people, thousands of them, that have come specifically to have him continue to minister to them. And one of the things I love about Jesus' heart is time and again we see he was busy. There was always something crying for his attention. And yet he always had a posture of being interruptible. And I just, this, that's just kind of an aside. We probably need to be living lives where we might be busy, but we always need to be interruptible for people because people matter more than the, the things that we try to do. People are important. They were important to Jesus. And so he sees these crowds. He sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion on them. And so he pauses what he's doing, and he spends that afternoon teaching them, healing them, praying over them. And at the end of the day, they're still there, and he says, listen, guys, we need to give them something to eat. And so he feeds some 5,000 of them in a very miraculous way. And as it's all wrapping up and the people are getting ready to go home, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, guys, I need you to get in the boat, and I need you to head home. I will meet you there. And they're going, Jesus, you're not coming? He's like, I'll meet you there. Trust me. Okay, you're the boss. They get in the boat and they head out. Jesus looks to the crowds and he begins to say goodbye to them as they begin to trickle back to their homes. So we're going to go in chapter 6. Verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he was dismissing the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Once again, we see this is what he had come out to do. He had to hit the pause button for a moment so he could focus on the people that were there. But once they're gone, he says, I need this. I need to connect with my true north, partially because I'm broken inside. My cousin's dead. And he was doing exactly what God was calling him to do, and he lost his life over it. And he needed to grieve that and process that. But also there was this groundswell of public opinion that kept buffering the sides of his boat, and it was pushing him back and forth. And he's going, God, I need your wisdom. I need your direction. Because there were people in that crowd. If you read John's um, kind of recollection of this same feeding, there were people in that crowd that started saying, hey, I think Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Let's make him our king. Let's go into Jerusalem and overthrow Pontius Pilate and let's put him on the throne. And Jesus is going, God, things are getting out of control and I just need your wisdom on how to proceed. And once again, he spends time with his true north and he reorients himself and he reorients his efforts. And all of those other things, the sadness that he's feeling and the excitement and some of the apprehension that he's feeling and knowing that this cross is getting closer and closer and closer. He's like, I need some time with you. I just need you to remind me, what are we doing again? I need you to remind me, what should I do next? What's the next step? And I just need you to remind me that I am not in this alone, that you're with me. It is imperative for those of us who are Christ followers, 
to have ballast in our lives. Because if we do not have ballast, we are in danger of capsizing. We are in danger of being pushed aside by any errant wave, whether it's something difficult or whether it's a claim and pride. It is so easy to be pushed off course. It is so easy to be capsized in our life. And I'm not just speaking as somebody who is, is talking hypothetically about this. I've experienced what life looks like when you are running at a million miles an hour without ballast in your life. About eight years ago, I was a new father. Ethan was just a year old at the time. I was a pastor at a, a church down the street. We were growing rapidly. There was lots going on. I was running really fast there. I was still teaching classes over at Vanguard. So I was an adjunct professor there. And I was running at a very, very fast clip. And in the process, something had to give. And the thing that was giving was my relationship with my family and my relationship with God. Time and again, Kathy would say, Eric, I know you're doing good stuff, but can you just be with us? And I felt resentful of it. Because I'm thinking to myself, doesn't she know that everything I'm doing, I'm doing for them? Doesn't she know that I'm serving God? In that season, I was a lot like Martha. I was running really hard trying to serve God, but I really wasn't spending much time with God like Mary did. And as I look back on that season in my life, it was as if I was pumping out the ballast tanks so that I could run fast and lean and hard. And in the process, I was getting more and more top-heavy, more and more in danger of being capsized by anything in my life. And I vividly remember the day that I went into the office. And it's funny how people on the outside can sometimes see more clearly what's going on in your life than you can see yourself when you're really close to it. I went into the office and my boss said, hey, Eric, come into my office for a moment. And he said, um, something's happened. The Eric, the, the, the joy-filled guy that I know and love, he's disappeared. And I'm not sure what's going on with you, but I'm concerned for you. So I want you to take the next couple of days and I want you to go home, spend some time with Kathy, and spend some time connecting with God and basically seeing if you can figure out what's going on. And then come back in and let's talk. And I'll be honest with you, I know he was trying to love me, but it sure felt like I'd just been called into the principal's office and suspended. And I went home, and thankfully it was Ethan's nap time. So I collapsed on the couch, and Kathy with me. And I, I'm not one that, I, at least I didn't used to be somebody who cried a lot. I'm getting a lot more emotional as I get a little older. Um, and I cried on the couch with Kathy. And we began to pray together. And for the next hour and a half or so, we just spent time pouring our hearts out to God and saying, God, we're not sure what's going on, but would you give us perspective? And in the midst of that prayer time, I felt as if I, I, I had a, a, a picture flash through my mind. I don't want to call it a vision because I don't want to make this all or anything like that. But I had this picture in my mind of me laying in a bed with a sheet up to my neck. And as the sheet in this, in this kind of vision in my mind was drawn back, I saw my body dry and emaciated and withered. And I knew exactly what that picture was showing me. It was showing me the state of my heart in that season. I had been pouring out and pouring out and pouring out into other people. And forgetting that I also needed to be refilled. That I needed to spend time with my true north. That I needed to allow him to pour into me. And so all I was doing is I was pouring out of the dregs rather than out of the overflow of my life. And I had grown stagnant, stale, and dry. 
And I knew that what God was telling me is, listen, I need you to put yourself on the sidelines. I need you to stop. Or to use the terminology we've been using, you are running as hard as you can with ballast tanks that are bone dry. And if you don't stop, then you will capsize. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So I'm putting you in dry dock, boy, because I love you too much to let you keep doing this. Again, my words, not his. Um, but that was the, the, the impression I was getting. And so I went back a couple days later, and, and I said, I've got to quit. Even though I've got a wife at home, and I've got a son, and this is our, our primary income, I need to obey my master, my shepherd, or I'm not going to just hurt myself. I'm going to hurt a lot of people who are relying on me and who are watching me. And that was a very, very difficult moment in my life because when you have found so much of your identity around a thing, a job, a, a, that what you do, and suddenly you say, I'm going to lay that down just to rest with God. All of a sudden you start asking questions like, who am I? And yet I felt like God, it was the most, in, in hindsight, as I look back on those eight years ago, the eight months that he kept me in that posture of resting in him and out of full-time ministry, was one of the greatest gifts he could have given me. Because it was as if he took a ship that was just a moment away from capsizing, just a small wave or a strong gust of wind from going over and taking all hands on deck down with it. And he said, you need to go into dry dock because you need some refitting. We need to not only fill your ballast tanks again, we need to give you larger ballast tanks. We need to get you seaworthy again. And those eight months... He kept bringing me back to Psalm 23 and this verse in there that says, you know, um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, was one of those seasons where he was making me do it. Leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's exactly what he was doing in that season, is he was restoring my soul. And eight months later, when he said, okay, we're doing this together, right? You're not going to try to do this on your own. You're not going to be lone range. You're not going to go Martha on me. All right, then you're ready. And he opened the door here to Lighthouse. Literally, the day he said, okay, the very next day my cousin emails me the job description. You guys have been looking for three months. I never had a clue. But once he gave me permission, it was like, all right, you're ready. And he led me here. And a very different pastor showed up than a man who eight months before had stepped out of my other church. And I am grateful for God's protection in that season because I was a man who was running with empty ballast tanks. So I've shown you what it looks like to be in danger of capsizing because our ballast tanks are empty. Now I want to give you a picture of what it looks like to run with full ballast tanks. I want to give you a picture of somebody who has been living his life constantly spending time day in and day out because I'll be honest with you, I needed a good amount of time for God to refill my ballast tanks and get me into a position where I was ready to come and lead other people. He needed to remind me, listen, buddy, you are first a sheep before you're ever a shepherd. You need to be filled with me before you can ever help lead other people and pour into them. Got it? Good. But it didn't need to get to that point. Because had I had the habit of spending time with him regularly, allowing him to pour into me, I may not have had to go through that season, although I look back on it and I'm grateful for what he did in the midst of it. I want to share with you a picture of, of somebody who 
has been walking through a really, really difficult season in his life. And yet he's been doing it with full ballast tanks. And I just want you to see the difference. So many of you know that one of my mentors, somebody who has poured a tremendous amount into my life, is a guy named Pete McKenzie. He's a man I respect greatly. I love spending time with him because he just reeks of Jesus. He's one of those guys that is constantly in his word, praying, you know, surrounding himself with others and reminding them and reminding himself of who God is. He knows his shepherd's voice and he follows it regularly. So I like being around guys like him. Well, six months ago, Pete's wife of 50 years, a woman named Susan, who is also a woman with deep, strong, full ballast tanks. Susan was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and they were thrust into a very unexpected storm. In a time where they were preparing for their 50th wedding anniversary, it should have been a time of celebration, and instead it became a time of, here we go. And yet in the midst of it, as they were walking through that, they never took their eyes off of their true north. They never stopped spending time leaning into him, praying, bringing all of this stuff and surrounding themselves with this massive crew of people who love them and they had been pouring into for much of their lives. These people turned around and kept pouring into them. And after three months, they said, we need to do something. We want to try to, to arrest the growth of this tumor in her brain. So they went out to Houston to one of the very best cancer surgery places and they had the doctors operate on Susan. And while Pete was out there, just to kind of give people, because there was lots of people who were wondering, what's going on? How are you doing? How can we pray for you? I was one of those guys that was texting him regularly, and I'm sure it was just more of a distraction and, and, and a burden for him to try to keep up with people than a blessing. And so he said, let me just send out an email to all of these people who love us and are concerned for us to share an update of what's going on. I want to read a portion of what he wrote, because what I hope you will hear are the words of a man who is going through a very, very big storm with full ballast tanks. So this was written on March 15th, 2017. While Susan is sleeping in her hospital bed next to me, and after being in this room for a week now, I want to share these thoughts with you. There's an upside to being here in Houston. For example, I had biscuits and gravy for breakfast the other day, and people here speak my language. He's from Arkansas. A good southern drawl is hard to find in my neighborhood in California. The South is swell, but there's something I love much more. I love that God gave me Susan almost 50 years ago for my beloved soulmate, my best friend and wife. We married, pledging vows like, I'll be there for you in the good times and the bad, in rich times and poor, in sickness and in health. And what an honor it's been to be with, to serve and honor Susan during these days of sickness. It's not a burden. It's a privilege. Because she is truly an amazing woman. A very special person. <laughs> She's so sweet that she keeps telling me when she can gather her thoughts how sorry she is to be putting me through all of this. I tell her that there's nowhere on earth I'd rather be than right here, right now, being with her in this and through this. We've had some precious moments of prayer and reminding ourselves of the four truths that God has taught us along the way that help us make peace with the realities of living in this fallen, hurting, sick, and dying world. The first thing that he's taught us is that life is hard. In this world, Jesus said, we'll have tribulation, hardships, trials, and suffering. 
we're not happy about what we're going through. It's not fun. In fact, there have been some very, very hard days lately. But I'm reminded of Oswald Chambers' words when he said, to choose to suffer means that there's something mentally wrong with you. But to be willing to suffer because it's God's will is a very different thing. These days, or these are the days when God truly proves to us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The second truth is that we're not in control. In other words, Susan and I are not God, either in our own minds or to each other. We didn't create the world, and we're not the way, the truth, or the life. We don't know the beginning from the end, but we know Jesus is, and we know that Jesus does. We don't want to be in control. We want he who knows us, cares for us, and is willing to be involved in every second of our life. He who is the almighty God who can do anything. We want him to be in charge. And as we allow him to change us, he reminds us at the cross that our lives are not our own, which leads to the third truth. It's not about us. When we surrendered our lives to Jesus as his bond servants, we have learned in these last 50 years with him that our lives and our marriage are not our own. We have a God, a master, a savior, and a Lord who loves us and who has a good plan for us and who, because of the cross and resurrection, has every right to help himself to our lives. If he wants to make us a thoroughfare for the world and deprive us of a private life, well, then he's our master and he calls the shots. We just have to fight through all the negative feelings, the doubts, the attacks of the merciless enemy, and all the myriad fears. And he helps us with all of that as we depend more and more on him and as you continue to pray for us and hold us up. But make no doubt about it. It is a fight that must be fought, a faith that must be kept, and a course which must be finished for his sake and for the crown of righteousness that awaits us when we meet him face to face, which leads us to this last truth. We're going to die but not one second before he is through with us. Nothing can remove us from this life until he allows it. He can overcome all enemies of his plan for us, and he will, because he has all authority and power over everything, including our death. We know this world is not our home and that we're just passing through. However, there is so much to live for here, isn't there? So much that we desperately try to hold on to. This is uncomfortable for us to deal with, but it's real, meaning that sooner or later we're going to have to deal with the reality of passing from this life to the next. And in that regard, we have no say. We can only make sure that we are ready when he calls. So, taking it a day at a time, with you holding us in our arms and supporting us as you have and do, and as I look around this hospital that treats cancer patients from all over the world, they have enough hell. So let's give them heaven. Those are the words of a man who finds himself battered by the waves of a sick wife and a broken world. And yet they are the words of a man who has deep, full ballast tanks and who is not blown and tossed by the waves of this world. I'd love to say that it got better from this point on, but she continued to go downhill. And a week ago, Susan went to be with Jesus. This last Wednesday, I and about 2,000 of their friends and family gathered together to say goodbye and to celebrate Susan's life. 
And it was admittedly about the longest memorial service I've ever been to. It ran about three hours long because there were so many people who were so close to her that wanted to say something. And after about two hours and 15 minutes, Pete stood up and the place went silent. And he walked up. He's a lot more frail today than he was the last time I got to sit down with him before Susan was ever diagnosed with anything. He's lost a lot of weight through this. And as he walked up to the mic, we're all silent because we all want to hear what this man who just lost the love of his life is going to say. And as he looked out over the the audience, he said, listen, I know a lot of you have been wondering how I'm doing. (laughs) This has been really hard. And this hurts more than I could ever possibly put into words. And I know that if Susan were here today, she would be embarrassed about all the nice things y'all are saying. But I also know that she would rather, rather than us focus on her today, she would want us to focus on the one who's holding her hand right now. The one who sacrificed his life to give her new life. And so I'm going to ask you guys to join me as we worship our Father God. And then he turned around and he walked off. And we spent the next half an hour worshiping our God with Susan. And that memorial service turned into a worship service. That is a man who has deep ballast tanks. And this morning I simply want you to consider how you're doing and where you've been focusing your energies and your attention. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to spend some time responding to this. But I have this question for you. Are you more focused on what's above the surface of the water, on what people see, how you look, how you present yourself on social media, how you're doing at work, and all of those other things, are you more preoccupied with that than you are with what's underneath the surface, with your relationship with God? Are you trying to navigate life with empty ballast tanks? Because if you are, then it doesn't matter how good things are. It's just a moment. It just takes a moment for an errant wave, whether it's something bad or something good to knock you completely off course or to completely capsize your life. If you are not currently spending time regularly allowing God to pour back into your ballast tanks, I want to beseech you as your friend, as your pastor, and as a fellow follower of Jesus Christ. Make sure that you keep regular time with him. Make sure that you keep those ballast tanks full. Because if you hope to do it when the storm hits, it's too late. When the sun is shining, that's when we continue to fill those things up so that we're prepared for the storms of life. And if you're standing or you're sitting in here this morning and you just recognize right now, you know what? I have been trying to navigate with empty ballast tanks. I'm pretty dry right now. Maybe things are going well, maybe they're not, but you just recognize my ballast tanks are empty and I want God to pour into them. If that's you, would you join me in standing up right now? Take that courageous step and say, yeah, God, fill my ballast tanks. If you're seated right now, then I would ask that you would stand and place your hand on somebody who's standing right now. Because we're a family, and we're just going to spend a moment praying over one another. 
why don't we just do it out loud right now all at once and in just a moment I, I will I'll close this time. Let's just pray. things that have been distracting us. Maybe they're good things. We're trying to serve you right now. And we're forgetting that we first need to be given direction and refilled by you so that we can serve you. Maybe some of us are hurting right now. Maybe it's bills that keep mounting. Maybe it's a relationship that is on the rocks and we're just, we're hoping and praying for a miracle. Maybe it's something physical that we're looking at in ourselves or somebody that we love. Maybe it's anxiety or an addiction that we just can't kick. Whatever it might be this morning that is keeping us or plugging up those ballast tank lines, that's keeping us from spending time with you. God, we hunger for you. We want to know your voice. We want to walk with you and, and follow every step that you call us to take. So would you remind us this week to pause, to find those moments to sit with you and become more familiar with your voice? Would you continue to speak to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit? Would you fill us up? Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys, we're going to worship. Um, and if you, if you just want to come down and kneel, you can. If you want to pray with somebody, I'm going to ask some of my elders to be in the back. If you just want to pray with somebody, there's going to be a couple of elder couples back there. Just go and grab somebody standing up. And let's just worship our God together.